Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Sergio Perez beat Max Verstappen to victory in the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, but only after the intervention of the safety car. So does that mean Checo really is in the title hunt, and what happened to Ferrari's qualifying speed? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and more are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, how have you enjoyed the weekend? We've got to get everybody's verdict on the new sprint format, because that's been the thing everyone's talking about. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle? Yeah, sort of in the middle. Um, no better or worse, really, overall than a than well, quote unquote normal sprint weekend because they were never really normal. Um, I, I I found specific, very explicit gains in the fact that uh, losing that Friday pra- uh, that FP two session on the Saturday morning was just a godsend. I, I hated that part of the old sprint weekend. Replacing that with another qualifying session is demonstrably an improvement. So I think overall it was a better set of sessions um, than a normal uh, Grand Prix weekend and certainly than uh, the previous sprint weekend because you lost that FP2, which is even more painful to sit through than an, uh, a normal FP2 or even an FP3 on a normal Grand Prix weekend. So, so that was fine, but it didn't blow me away because it was always ultimately going to be limited because the sprint race here played out exactly as I expected the sprint race at a street track to. It was just middle of the road to bad. It wasn't good and it certainly wasn't exciting. How about you, Mark? Where do you stand on this? In the middle, same. Just the same as Scott. Um, It was sort of a a separate event, more disconnected, wasn't it, from the main event than than the normal sprint? But yeah, I, I didn't mind it. It was fine, and it's um, yeah, it's probably better than watching um, free practice sessions. But that, that that was that was the case already. So yeah, fine. Yeah, I'm in a very similar place, maybe half a step down in that that disconnection you mentioned. I'm not so keen on it. Made Saturday feel a little bit low stakes and a bit a bit of a pale reflection of the rest of the weekend obviously not having fp2 and having the qualifying on the on, on the saturday morning for the sprint was much much better in, in that regard but globally i don't quite like the week the way the weekend ramps up but equally it's not a disaster it's not something i hate i i think um i i didn't really feel the disconnection so much just mainly because i think when i'm in a grand prix weekend like the cut and thrust of it means the session's kind of a creep up on me anyway so I don't really feel that natural evolution in that sense but I do I do understand where the sort of that kind of growing sense of urgency and like the increased stakes through the weekend is much more apparent on a Grand Prix weekend less so here Um, I guess that was partly offset by the fact that I did find it pretty cool on Saturday to just sort of get here and then the first time you see the cars on track the drivers are having to throw it into a qualifying lap so that that was something I kind of felt like if anything it needed the the Saturday I didn't mind the Saturday sprint I didn't mind it being disconnected from the rest of the weekend but it the both I think qualifying and the race I felt needed to be different to what came normally I liked qualifying the sprint shootout as it's called I thought that was fine um, but I would have liked to have seen a different format just to make it that one step different to a normal qualifying session and I think I would just like to have the race done differently because I agree the bit that I wasn't convinced of I didn't necessarily agree with you earlier in the weekend I didn't expect to feel like there were lower stakes in the race but I think when the sprint actually played out I did feel that there was just less to play for than than, than the old sprint. 
And obviously, it's just a one-off so far. There's still some loose ends to be tied up, a few things about tie rules in qualifying that weren't perhaps quite written as rigorously as they should have been. But the format basically works, and we're going to see it again, I think, next up at Imola. So it won't be long before we get another of these. All the sprints this year are running to this. There's six of them in total. This was the first. So I think we'll see plenty of talk about these. The the paddock seem to be generally positive about it. But yes, I think we'll need a few more to get... A precise feel about it, but I'd actually slightly preferred the old sprint format, but would certainly agree perhaps a more radical departure is needed to give Saturday its own identity. But let's get into the race weekend itself, Scott, because although it was relatively mundane on track, there's still a lot of talking points. We'll actually start at the end of the race because everybody who watched the Grand Prix will have seen people spilling into the pit lane when Esteban Ocon made his last pit stop. So can you explain who they were, what they were doing there and why this happened? Yeah, um, I think it's been slightly unfairly characterised by certain people as it was suggested it was just errant photographers that were waiting around. Usually the answer is errant photographers, Scott. <laughs> but I think it's unfair because the suggestion is that they were kind of just almost an implication that they were breaking the rules because they were desperate to get a certain shot or something like that. But it, it, I think there were photographers sort of around that area, but there were other media as well. I think the presumably there were some some tv cameras and tv personnel there and there were fia and f1 personnel i think setting up for for park Ferme and the podium ceremony that's what they were doing it's the it's the usual congregation basically that appears in a live pit lane which is pretty astonishing in the final lap or so of the grand prix because basically 99.99 percent of the time no car comes into the pit lane at that point they can get ahead and make sure that everything's set up for when the cars come in at the end of the race of course that zero point zero zero one percent or whatever has actually manifested itself twice in two races now having happened in australia as well um so basically what happens is you have this crowd of people that are there and in this case they were spilling over into the fast lane i think there's even like a little temporary barrier that had been set up which i guess guides the cars into the park Ferme area or wherever they're wanting to sort of place the cars at the end of the race um so that was all being set up as Istvan Ocon comes into the pit lane in in the fast lane. And unfortunately, it was all obviously noticed and the people moved out the way in time. The barrier, little barrier was removed. Um, Ocon did back off and, and slow down to, to give them them chance to. But yeah, it was um, it was an entirely avoidable incident for two reasons. One, it's a live pit lane. You should never have a potential for that situation to arise anyway. It's just a pointless risk. And two... It was very, very obvious to anyone paying attention that Ocon would be coming into the pit lane because he and Nico Hulkenberg had run to the very end of the race, hoping against hope for a safety car or a red flag, having done the entire Grand Prix on the same set of hard. So we had a mandatory pit stop to make. It was so obvious. It was so avoidable. Yeah, I must admit, they should have seen it coming. I've got a problem with a live pit lane having people in it. That shouldn't really be happening because you never know who might pit. Even if you don't know, there's still people who have to make a mandatory pit stop. Someone can come into the pits unexpectedly. So I do think they need to tidy that. Mark, what did you make of it? Pretty startling to see that sort of thing happening. Yeah, it's just, um, I, I suspect it will now lead to something more stringent being put in place. Um, so you can't, you can't, for just the sake of convenience, have everybody sort of pre-gathered there. Um, you will actually have to wait until uh, the race is called. So, um, yeah, but it, 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 it exposed the problem. It's been exposed twice, so there's no excuse not to, um, not to put something in place, I guess. Yeah, yeah it's certainly a, a very, very clear problem that, shouldn't really have existed but Scott there was obviously fallout it was looked into so what was the actual consequence of the FIA investigating it and the stewards even looking into it uh, the consequence was the stewards the FIA stewards um criticizing the FIA and this is obviously different strands of it because the the, the stewards are FIA personnel when they're working at the event but they are an independent body and in a kind of perverse way the, this is that's one of the things that's kind of good about this. It's a good example for the FIA to say, look, see, the stewards really do act independently of us because they've just given us a proper, they got away with a slap on the wrist really, but it was a pretty, pretty blunt and, and clear criticism. They said basically that the, the, the team in charge of um, that particular set of processes messed up. Um, they were lucky that there wasn't a, a severe incident because it was very dangerous. Um, and they basically ordered them to make changes to the to the processes, the procedures as soon as possible to avoid a repeat. And that will happen. The FIA have said 
that will change for next week in Miami. They haven't explicitly said what it'll be, but I, my understanding is that it's um, basically a tighter rule on who can be there, when they can be there, where they can go. So bit sensible it would be a shame if we now still see people spilling out into the pit lane with a lap to go um it's just entirely unnecessary um we spoke to one of our photographers who who said that that there should be enough time even if you did it when the final car takes the checkered flag there should be enough time for everybody to get into position so no excuse really Anyone who's ever seen a photographer running around an F1 track will know how quickly they can move from one shooting location to another. So I can certainly believe that. And obviously the safety is paramount. So yes, hopefully we will see some changes. But let's get on to the actual race on track, Mark. It ultimately wasn't the best of weekends for Max Verstappen by his lofty standards. Second in the uh, main race, third in the sprint, didn't get a pole position. Ended up behind Sergio Perez in the the race and in the sprint qualifying as well. So can you explain how the battle between the two of them played out over this weekend and how Perez ultimately prevailed? Yeah, Max wasn't in a very happy place with the car, but that was probably only fully exposed by just how fast Perez is around this place. Uh, Had Perez been two or three tenths off like he is at many places in the last couple of years, then Max would have been dominant despite the issues he was having and and it wouldn't have been so visible. there was very little between them in raw pace all weekend. Max was a tenth or so faster in Friday qualifying. Perez a tenth faster in the sprint shootout. As in previous races this year, we, we see the Red Bull doesn't get front tyre temperature by the start of the lap. And on this occasion, that was a lo- enough to lose them pole for the first time. Also thanks to Leclerc's brilliance around here. But once the Red Bull's tyres are up and running, there's no comparison. It's a way faster car than the Ferrari or anything else as it's able to fully exploit its superior aerodynamics. So after just four laps, the outcome was already only about Verstappen and Perez. And because there was no significant pace difference between them, it became about tyre usage and strategy. And Perez wasn't putting the same strain on his tyres and Max wasn't happy with his feeling in the car, particularly the front end. Um, Perez was taking time out of him under braking into turns two, three, and eight. So your heavy braking corners, and um, he was able then to, to get into his Max's DRS zone. And once you're in the DRS zone, you can force the other guy ahead to, to use their tires more. You can do, you can. It's worth around three tenths at that track, so you can sort of, in theory, go three tenths a lap slow through the corners and then just neutralize it with your DRS usage. The other guy's got to, you know, push to do that same lap time and that will, you know, hurt his tires more. So that's what was happening. Um, and then just as he was in place to mount a DRS challenge on him, um, Verstappen was brought in as the pit stop window was open. They had a big enough gap to drop into and that would normally have rescued the race for Max. But of course, there was the DeFries safety car and that was perfect for Perez, allowed him to leapfrog past and into the lead for the second stint. And that tyre usage advantage that we'd seen in the first stint this time allowed him to always stay just out of Max's DRS reach. So it was within a tenth of a second at one point, but then Max had to back off as his tyre temperatures were too high. And after that, it just ballooned and Perez had it won, even though he came close to losing it, smacking the... Uh, Turn 15 tyre barriers pretty hard, but they both they both clipped tyres at certain points, and um, it was it was a it was a nice flat out scrap. The um, the second stint, the hard tyres were were robust enough that they could actually really let rip, and it was a proper old fashioned pace, you know, flat out stint. So yeah, it was it was it was a nice, interesting, tense contest between them. Scott, you were keeping a close eye on Verstappen as he was kind of working on the car a little bit with the tools he's got. He got into a reasonable position by the end of the race, didn't he, he felt? But there was nothing he could do. He threw everything at Perez and it was it was just second place. Yeah, he'd been um, he'd been playing around with a few things. He he, he wasn't overly chuffed in, in the first stint either. Um, what was interesting in the first stint, before just before Red Bull brought him in and because Perez had taken a chunk of lap time out of him, is that... Verstappen had actually had a bit of feedback saying that his rear slip had been what was was slightly better than Perez's, and the suggestion was that that Perez was 
pushing a little bit harder at a couple, a, a couple of entry points. So the implication from that was that actually Max was in a slightly stronger position. But then all of a sudden seemed to bleed a bit of lap time and, and, and Perez was on him. And, and Max later admitted that he hadn't really pushed as hard as he probably could have done. And I think that's what sort of led to that situation Mark was explaining where Perez was able to get within the DRS zone, which um, which obviously, within DRS range, sorry, which, which obviously gave him the opportunity to sit in Verstappen's wake and put the pressure on. And, and that was the crucial difference in the second part. Verstappen never got within DRS, did he? So he, he couldn't put the pressure on in, in the same way. He was just far back enough to be almost struggling in the dirty air without gaining, and obviously gaining it with a toe, but not gaining enough to get into DRS range and then actually use the DRS. So he's scrabbling around, changing settings on the steering wheel. I think he did some B-bow changes. He was given the option to to to, to, to have a, I think it was a change in the diff setting, the the, the, the mid-corner uh, mid diff setting um, around the entire lap. Or I think he had a specific toggle that he could have used for a certain point of, oversteer at different points, understeer at different points, just really unhappy with the balance of the car. And I think he was just uncomfortable in a way that Perez wasn't. And it was really only until those final 10 laps where Verstappen felt he really got a handle on it. And that is sort of when he chipped away again and, and, and brought that gap down. But it was it was too little, too late. I, I know that this wasn't, we had this conversation mid-race. I know this wasn't a totally, totally straight fight because you had that position reversal because of the, the the safety car timing. But the way that Perez ended that first stint, and I was, I'm adamant he was going to pass Verstappen on track um, had Verstappen not been brought in. He put enough pressure on in the first stint. I think he would have gained track position, however briefly, in the first stint as well. And Max had every opportunity to come back at him in the second stint. This, As far as I'm concerned, this was to all intents and purposes a straight fight that Perez actually came out on top of, which is the first time I think he's actually looked better than Verstappen over a Grand Prix distance. Yeah, I certainly agree. It was probably his best win. And yeah, just that slight distortion of the safety car slightly altered the race. I mean, it's a hypothetical, isn't it, Mark? But if the race played out as normal, do you think you'd have ended up with Perez being the second car uh, being able to reverse the positions, assuming that that pit stop cycle had gone as normal? I think if it hadn't been for the safety car, um, uh, Max would have got the advantage by coming in um, when he did. Um, and then Perez would have been chipping away at him, and I think he probably had the pace to have got into DRS range. Uh, he was just more comfortable in the car. He, the, the way he drives, he doesn't need the same things from the tools as Max. Um, and yeah, I think he, he was just easy. He had a better combination of pace and tire usage. And I think he would have got into DRS range and probably been able to pass. Um, obviously Max, you're talking about Max Verstappen here. So just cause you can get put a DRS pass on him doesn't mean the, the, the contest is over. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it necessarily, um, would have, just been a reverse uh, had it not been for the safety car. What a shame it didn't play out that way because that would have made for a much more interesting race. And, and Perez was really strong, so he almost deserved the chance to win it that way. Although I'm sure he won't be complaining too much. It would have tested the one instruction that Christian Horner said he gave uh, the drivers before the start of the race, which was no Baku 2018 replay, which was when Verstappen and um, Daniel Ricciardo had that ridiculous coming together on the run down to turn one. I mean, they're... The race needed not necessarily that, but the race needed the two of them to go wheel to wheel because it was so flat. Um, and that first sort of six or seven laps after the safety car, when they were really, I mean, they were going at it that entire stint, as as Mark was explaining earlier. But that I felt that six or seven laps after the safety car, when they just dropped the rest of the field. And there's one shot where you're you can't I can't remember what lap it was exactly, but you could it was the camera shot looking back down the start finish straight from turn one the two rebels coming down about you know 1.1 seconds apart and then just nothing behind them just a just absolute just hundreds and hundreds of meters of clear air and then just in the background a, a, a ferrari appears and it was it was devastating the 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 advantage that rebel has when they really opened it was like saudi wasn't it the second half of the saudi race they just disappear up the road they're in their own race 
Yeah, absolutely. Class of their own. And I think the only reason there was any hope from the sprint because Leclerc was able to beat Verstappen was because Verstappen had that damage. We'll talk a bit about that later on. But Scott, as always, we'll have our usual batch of questions from the Race Members Club at the end of the podcast. It does seem appropriate to slot in this, though, now from Niall Boyle. He asks, is Sergio Perez now a genuine title contender? Could we see his and Max's relationship start to deteriorate a la Hamilton and Rosberg? Six points now the gap in Verstappen's favour. Well, for now, he is a title contender. He's, he's, he's too close in the points not to be considered one. And he's won half of the races so far. And he's, and he's won the sprint as well. He's got more wins than Verstappen does this season, which I don't think anyone would have put their money on it. Um, if we'd said, you know, where are we get, how are we going to be looking by Baku or after Baku? Um, but I think the thing that Verstappen's probably aware of and Red Bull's probably aware of is that this phase of the season has had, you know, two races that Perez has been strong at in, in the past, the street the street tracks. I don't I don't quite subscribe to the view that he is, you know, king of the streets or whatever his nickname is. Or uh, I think he's certainly got an elevated success rate on street tracks and I think all of his Red Bull wins have come on on street tracks now um but I think there's there's there was a Christian Horner answer from a question that I asked him after the race I think sums it up I was sort of I put it to Horner that the Saudi win for Perez this year was already very good but it did have that key benefit of he had the track position precisely because Verstappen started further back so this was a better win, a slightly better version of a very good win. And Horner just said, oh, I think uh, I think he just needs to do it at a normal track now. He's excelled at street circuits. All his victories for us have been at street tracks. Second time he's won here, won Singapore, won Monaco, won Jeddah. Just need to get him going at the proper circuits now. And I I know that it was sort of said half in jest, but it's also not totally in jest it's half in truth you know Perez excels on this kind of track he does better on this kind of track than a conventional circuit and as Verstappen alluded to in the press conference it's all about consistency from this point onwards and I think uh, I think an aggressive interpretation of that is Verstappen saying I know I can be consistent over a season let's see if this guy can and even if he didn't mean that I'm gonna say it now let's see if Perez can be this consistent when we do go to as Horner called them proper circuits because that's what we need to see from him yeah certainly I think you have to consider Perez in the fight but it's going to take a fair bit of convincing for me that he can do much about Verstappen over a season as the question alluded to it would need to probably deteriorate into a bit of a Mercedes 2016 type scenario for that but we should very briefly Mark talk about that Perez on street circuits certainly agree with Scott that I don't think he's the best street circuit driver though I think you can look at one of the guys in one of the red cars for for proof of that and we have to say, though, that Perez is effective on street tracks and he's always been very good at Baku. He's got some good results at a lot of them. So how much do you think there is in that? And can you just run through some of the elements of his driving that make him quite effective here? Yeah, he's always very good between the walls where you where you, you gain speed from getting as close to the walls on, on the exits as possible. He's got very nice throttle control. Um, that's also part of why he's very good at looking after his rear tyres. He's, he's relatively late on the on the throttle and soft but he can judge his speed um his entry speed um very nicely they 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 the sort of um where you're skimming margins like that it, it that that's just because he doesn't load the car up heavily on entry he's he's able to be um very sort of creative Early in the corner and and really nail the exit and 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 just rush run right up to the you know the, to the to the edges of the of the uh, the tire wall that you know you, you see quite often he's the bulge in his rear tires actually just just shaving the wall and he can do that very consistently and it doesn't seem to be a problem for him so that's yeah he's in his element there um, yeah on a on a normal track. Um, the demands are a little bit they're, they're not the same there's the sort of move back earlier into the corner and you get rewarded more in lap time with being able to load the car up early in the corner rather than later in the corner and um that's that's where somebody like max is is quite outstanding and um yeah i'd be surprised if he can keep this level of competitiveness against max up on um as as we move to 
more conventional circuits. He's certainly going to try, and all credit to him for keeping his head down and not just accepting second best at Red Bull. He's going to want to keep this run going for a while yet. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Scott, let's move on to Ferrari. Charles Leclerc was on inspired form. A couple of pole positions, second in the sprint, third in the Grand Prix. Are you declaring Ferrari's back? <laughs> no, not at all. I'll, uh, I'll declare... Uh, I'll declare that Leclerc's got his season going. That's as far that's as far as you can go because um, I think really all th- all Ferrari did was um, finally hook up um, a pretty clean weekend. Certainly on one of their cars. Well, both cars really had clean weekends. It's just one had a slightly uh, slower weekend than than the other. I don't think there were any point over the first um, three uh, three rounds where the the Ferrari sort of gave it you know, we ended the weekend with the result that the Ferrari should have had because Bahrain was obviously the the, the most complete performance-wise, but then Leclerc didn't finish the race because of the problem. So I think there was genuinely something in that once Ferrari hooked it all up, they might be sort of second or third quickest if they did a very good job. It might be circuit dependent, but they're in that mix with Aston and Mercedes, they're not miles behind in, in, in fourth or whatever. So I think there was that. And then there was obviously some specific elements this weekend that that contributed uh, to them. The the way the Rebel works its front tyres, the fact that Ferrari does seem to be able to switch them on and the nature of this track combines quite nicely. Plus, bringing a Baku-specific rear wing meant that Ferrari, having had you know having made a gain straight line speed-wise to, to Red Bull over the winter, still had a deficit. I think that cut that as well. So it was a specific area of their deficit that got improved. But then the biggest factor is just Charles Leclerc. It's the Leclerc magic in around a street track, uh, one like this. You know, Mark wrote a terrific piece after Leclerc's qualifying performance on, on, on Friday. And it was brilliant because um, I hadn't actually seen Leclerc's onboard lap, but I've seen so many Charles Leclerc onboard laps. And I remember reading it and I think it got to a I think the bit that like... I could almost, I could basically visualise the lap in my mind from what Mark was writing, but the bit that crystallised most was when he got to the penultimate two corners and just that like riding that sheer wave of confidence and just sort of like tipping the car in and just letting it letting it run and not having to think about it at all. That's peak Charles Leclerc, especially on, on a street track. So I think this was a weekend where the Ferrari was good. The Ferrari was just as good as the Ferrari should be maybe a tiny bit more competitive relative to the Red Bull, but then Leclerc did the damage. And if you're looking at it from a point of view of, you know, is Ferrari back? They've basically just banked a result that they should have had already by now. And I think Leclerc's body language after the race kind of underlined that in that he wasn't particularly pleased. He wasn't jump jumping up and down. He was absolutely buzzing after his qualifying lap and, and, and getting pole on Friday. But you could tell by Sunday evening, it was very much a, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. This, we're just miles behind in the races. Yeah, further making his pole to wins ratio look even Oh my God, yeah, I forgot about that. That's got, what's that now? Like like a billion poles and five wins or something? Yeah, he's got five wins, hasn't he? It's 17 poles, and I don't have the number (laughs) off the top of my head. No, just just extraordinary. But he is brilliant to watch. I I love it when when he, because he's willing to let it sort of hang out a little bit on the exits but the way he gathers it up is so precise and it's just that sort of right on it just just gathers it up quickly and doesn't overdo it doesn't sort of massively hang the rear out it's just brilliant to uh, watch him but there was a big contrast mark with Carlos Sainz because we can't talk about Leclerc's brilliance and Ferrari's form without mentioning him a couple of fifth places for Sainz but he wasn't in the same league as Leclerc was he in fact if we're talking uh, football leagues he's probably two divisions lower yeah he's not as confident in this car as Leclerc he just can't commit in the same way. And any, any any such difference is always magnified when you're at a street track and the walls are close. So at a normal track, if you're not as confident in the braking area, you can still try and push your luck. And if it goes wrong, you lose a bit of lap time. Here you're in the wall, so you, you can't push in that way if the confidence is not there. 
and it just hasn't been there for science with this car all season. But here, that was really punishing. And he, he just did the sensible thing of recognizing his own limitations around here and, and driving within them rather than putting it into the wall, which was the only other alternative. So um, he and this car are just not gelling. And we're, you know, four races in now, and it, it it's still not happening. So, yeah, it's it's beginning to, you know, it's beginning to be a bit of an issue, I think. I'll quickly correct myself. It's 19 poles for Leclerc and five wins rather than 17. So an, an even worse ratio. But yeah. Well, why would you think it would be that ridiculous? Well, it's crazy, isn't it? Absolutely uh, astonishing. But yeah, Science talks about it being a weekend of damage limitation for him. And actually, I think considering his pace, he's right to be relatively content with two fifth places, just not happy with the circumstances that led to it. But he, even after the race today, said that he was he was actually relatively happy in the first stint in mediums, but then on the hards, really struggling, no confidence. And he said he, he almost had to back off a little bit because he was worried about making a mistake and hitting the wall. He even said that perhaps a year ago, with less experience, he might well have made that mistake trying to force the issue, but he just sort of knuckled down and thought, no, bring home a fifth place. It's not great, but you're not going to solve this problem right now. You've just got to get through this weekend. I, I fear that this weekend might have actually kind of exposed to Carlos himself that he has that 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 weakness with this car that Mark was talking about. Because I did an interview with, with Carlos on, on Thursday and I suspect it will probably run on the race website at some point this week. And he talked about being in a better place than, than 12 months ago in terms of his understanding of the car and and what it needs and he he feels he under he feels he does get what it needs um so he's therefore in a better place to to do it but he described it as a tricky car to drive so he understands it but it's not comfortable to drive and i think on the more conventional circuits i think where you do have that bit of leeway i i suspect signs can get up or close to that level but when it's when it's so raw and automatic as it is on a street track like this, that's where that difficult to drive element of it maybe exposes that that driver that doesn't have that just sort of freakish command of it that Leclerc clearly has. And we were having this conversation earlier, weren't we? Where we sort of suggested that on a street track, you are obviously still car limited. You put Leclerc wasn't getting pole in any car on 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 Friday or, or Saturday. If you put him in the Williams, he wouldn't have stuck it on pole. But on a track like this, the the influence of how driver-limited you are, I think, is, is intensified. And the Ferrari comparison was quite a nice illustration of that, where you had one driver clearly totally in tune or willing to put up with whatever the car needed and just absolutely singing and dancing. Nails it, puts it on pole, probably overachieves slightly. And the other driver who doesn't have that confidence, you know, there's probably only a tiny difference in approach, confidence, whatever you want, however you want to quantify it. But it manifests itself in a massive gap, not just in qualifying, but also in race pace at, at times. Signs signs was just absolutely nowhere. He was blown away, blown to smithereens by Leclerc this weekend. Yeah, he may have suffered a little bit more because of the sprint format, perhaps with a little bit more practice time on a normal weekend with three free practice sessions and part of them on Saturday afternoon. It might have been a bit better, but I don't think it would have been transformative. Aston Martin, Scott, not an Aston Martin on the podium for the first time this year. Fernando Alonso did take fourth place with Lance Stroll seventh. So why did Aston Martin, by recent standards, struggle? And saying that, they were still only one second away from the podium in the end. Yeah, it was. In, it ended up being, I think, a good damage limitation job from a for for a weekend that started out so so not well poorly by their high standards of this year, but just messy and and a bit disrupted. There there was the the DRS issue, which obviously plagued them throughout Friday and then even even Saturday, basically until until the races, um, which I, I think. Um, Mike Crack uh, referred to as a bit of a, a distraction, sort of suggesting it wasn't obviously the be all and end all of their problems, but it was obviously a key issue because they didn't have it at, at key moments in qualifying. There was, I think he, I think he downplayed it a little bit in the end because there was a, there was a very, very, very clear uh, calculation from the team, both in what the engineers uh, engineer told uh, Alonso at the end of qualifying, what Alonso was saying on Saturday, and, and what the team seemed to be suggesting that he probably could have should have grabbed fourth on the grid if he had everything working. And then he's got a quite a different race. He might have even beat Leclerc. It's not necessarily likely because 
he could have found himself in exactly the same position as he did in, in the actual Grand Prix. But I think, yeah, like I said earlier, like the Ferrari was just maybe in its more natural position here or certainly more in the ballpark. And when that happens, it's small differences will be the difference between Aston being on the podium or Ferrari being on the podium. So I don't think they had some grand weakness that was suddenly exposed in the car this weekend. I think they were about where they probably should be. It's just they slightly underperformed and, and the first non-podium of the season was the result of that. Yeah, and that DRS problem was primarily an aero problem. It was a new rear wing for them. They did get it sorted by the time they got to the, the sprint race, but it certainly didn't help them in qualifying. I might ask Gary Anderson about that in the upcoming episode of the Race F1 Tech Show. Mark, let's talk a little bit about Mercedes now, but I think first we've got to talk about that Verstappen versus George Russell contretemps in the sprint on the first lap. What do you make of Verstappen's reaction to that? Did he have a point? No, he didn't have a point. You're on the outside. You're the vulnerable one. You can sit it out and hope the other guy's got enough room, but it's not on your hands. It's 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 lap one. The brakes and tyres are cold. George has stuck his nose up the inside and has been unable to then keep out the side of the Red Bull. As for Max's reaction to it, it's just competitive adrenaline, isn't it? I, I don't have a problem with that, but that's not the same as agreeing he has a point. It, it's just racing. Um, and George was looking to capitalise on that first lap. It's an opportunity he's not likely to get again if he doesn't make it work on lap one because he's in a slower car. So as you know, as the as the packs all you know, hustling for position and every, everything's a bit mixed up, that's that's his only opportunity. So you know, we saw early laps in Australia. Max didn't sort of let that get to him. Really, he knew he had a much faster car, and George threw it down the inside into turn one and then Lewis did the same into turn three and he was just he's quite calm about it Max on that that occasion and he just reasoned quite logically well yeah okay whatever I'll I've got a way faster car in the DRS and I'll just get you later on um you're in a sprint so you you, you're not going to get necessarily as clear-cut an opportunity as that because it's, it's a short race but maybe he would have been, you know, better to 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 look on it more more like that. It's difficult to get out the way in those it, it, it's such a narrow track with you know two or three abreast. But it's that's just how it can play out, and you you you, you can't really, you know, you can't really blame the other guy who has just been sort of nipped in by circumstance as much as anything else. Um, the fact that the Merc was. A significantly slower cards. That's not really any different from from the other tracks we've seen this year. This weekend, it dropped to the back of that three team group that's behind the Red Bulls, which I think is just track characteristics. It's slower than the Ferrari on the long straights, especially when the Ferrari put its back wing on, and it's got worse tire dig than the Aston Martin. So you know, um, probably got comparable straight line speed to the Aston and com- comparable. Tire deg to the Ferrari, neither of them strong points. So I think as we go to different tracks, we'll just we'll see those three teams just just bob in, you know between them. We'll be uh, up one and down in another place. That would make for a great battle at the front if Red Bull either wasn't there or was in the group, wouldn't it? It shows how these these things can swing. If Red Bull wasn't there, people were saying, this is brilliant. It swings from one to the other to the other. But ideally, we want all four of them up there at the front, swinging from one to the other uh, to the other. But Scott, we should have a little bit of a talk about Alpine. Because if I take you back to Friday, Friday lunchtime, you had a chat with Matt Harmon, the technical director of Alpine. He was very upbeat, wasn't he, about the upcoming upgrade, floor upgrades, the main centrepiece of that, a nice step for Alpine, good weekend ahead. So how did that crumble <laughs> so spectacularly? <laughs> it was um, it was remarkable. I, I, I don't think I've seen a weekend like it, a Grand Prix weekend like it for one team across both cars. It was... Uh, I lost count of the number of miserable sound bites I got from uh, like Pierre Gasly and uh, Alan Permain after after the the the, the race. Um, it, it snowballed out of control from FP1, where um, Alpine didn't do enough good enough job in getting the cars ready. That was from a partly from a setup point of view, but mainly reliability. They had a hose uh, fail on 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 Gasly's car, which is what um, caused the, the the fire that we saw that that ended his session. I think they had a gearbox build problem on on Ocon's car so he ended up um staying in the garage as a as a precaution so I think they managed was it like 15 laps between them in the only practice session um for the for the entire weekend after which you're into Park Ferme 
So you, your uh, Pamain didn't uh, take too kindly to me to me asking sort of how much guesswork then went into the the setup. I, I did say uh, compared to a normal weekend, I wasn't suggesting that they just went. Uh, let's just do this. Um, uh, so, but the, but there was an element of guesswork in in, in the setup, and and they the, and they didn't get it exactly right. No, they? exactly. They 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 they, they got it wrong. Um, they then uh, this then managed to. Um, uh, continue uh, through through the weekend. So Gasly had his crash in, then had a crash in qualifying after um, Alpine had managed to um, rebuild uh, rebuild the car. Um, and on Ocon's side, they discovered uh, a significant amount of plank wear, which they basically would have clocked sooner if they'd had both cars running more in in, in free practice. Um, so after qualifying, I think this was at some point on Saturday, they realised they had to change the setup of um, Ocon's car, change the the I guess the the ride height and maybe some 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 other elements, um, which meant he had to have a pit lane start for for both the the sprint race and um, Sunday's race. Um, so it really was just um, uh, just an absolute nightmare from from start to finish. Unsurprisingly, after all of that, ended in in in, in no points. I think the all, all of the, the the messes and like the you know the big headline items like the fire and the crash and the pit lane starts kind of disguised the fact that then when the car did run in the races they it was it was pretty slow because they didn't have the setups right so it was just an absolute disaster Gasly said nobody enjoyed that weekend and they were quite scathing of them of, of themselves very much uh, we cannot let this happen again because we have just not done a good enough job from start to finish here it's such a funny situation for Alpine, isn't it, this year? Because they've got a car that's in fits and starts been genuinely quick, but they've only managed to come away with eight points so far in four races. I did think they might deserve a little bit of luck in the race. Obviously, Ocon ran long, so did Nico Hulkenberg in the Haas. And because they started on the hearts, they had to stay out when the safety car came out. And then it just came down to sitting there and hoping that a safety car or ideally a red flag was to come and then the, the laps counted down so that was why Ocon did that last lap pit stop but I thought it was appropriate for their endeavours to be rewarded with that little slice of luck perhaps with something happening but it wasn't to be and Ocon finished uh, last on the road but yeah really really difficult weekend for Alpine but they do remain upbeat about the potential of that car and I think we'll start seeing some big results from them fairly soon and reasserting themselves as a as a as a strong midfielder, certainly in terms of the final results, which haven't really been forthcoming. Well, that has now become traditional. We'll finish off with a blast of questions from the Race Members Club. To find out how to support the race and get all sorts of members' perks, including the chance to ask us questions for our Grand Prix Review podcasts, head to our website and click on Join the Race. Our first question is from Sean Murphy, which we'll aim at you, Mark. Sean says, I'm wondering if you could explain the difference between the Verstappen-Russell incident in the sprint and the incident between Verstappen and Hamilton in Brazil last year. In both incidents, the overtaking driver had a significant portion of the car alongside Russell less so but only one incident was penalized is this solely down to first lap leniency for what it's worth I didn't see an issue with either incident when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping Kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time Kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. 
Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. No real difference, Sean, and no, I don't have a problem with the other incident either. Um, as I said before, if, if you're on the outside, as Lewis was in turn two Brazil, or Max was Silverstone 21, or Leclerc was Austria 19, you're the vulnerable one. You can choose to fight it out, but the other guy may not back down, or he may not be able to, as was the case with George here. Um, as for why no penalty this time, yeah, I guess lap one is more lenient than uh, lap one. I guess if you're looking for a, a reason for the difference um, in, in penalties, um, probably that. We've got a question for you, Scott, from Andrew Thompson on a related topic. It says, in Australia, Sainz locks up at the first corner and makes contact with the side pod of the car outside him that has left him room. In Baku, Russell locks up at the second corner and makes contact with the side pod of the car outside that has left him room. Why does one get a penalty that ruins his race and the other isn't even noted by the stewards? Well, beyond the, the basically repeating what, what Mark said, that I think um, first lap leniency comes into play here because it's the first lap proper of this race and although it is the first lap of a full standing restart in in Australia they for whether it's a standing restart or a safety car restart they just they don't treat first lap restarts the same as that of a, of a Grand Prix or at least they haven't his, historically so that is a bit strange I do think there's also slight difference in in the two um, incidents in that the Sainz Alonso one like Alonso plays zero part in that incident happening so I Sainz is completely to blame for for, for what happened in um, in Australia, whereas in 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 Baku, I think that was very much, uh, if, if not um, six to one, half a dozen to the other, it was sort of seven to five. Um, Verstappen is, as Mark was saying, trying to duke it out around the outside. He's 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 taking a risk. He has left a reasonable amount of room, but could have left a little bit more. He has also pinned Russell a little bit on on entry, and then sort of left the space sort of after that almost. So. Yeah, it was just a it was just a racing incident. That's that's why I think. Whereas the first one, there was a clear aggressor. And the next question, which I'll take from Jay Gannon, who asks, "What is the perception from F1 about the sprint weekend? I'm hoping for a swift change to this format, as it just didn't work. It felt incredibly disconnected and not worth watching." Well, we gave our opinions at the start, but in terms of the F1 paddock, there was sort of reasonable positivity some drivers didn't like it Max Verstappen continues to criticize it some drivers said it'd be quite nice if it allowed a, a two-day weekend in terms of the on-track activity don't think they're going to get that given the promoters quite like the extra day obviously there were concerns about the fact that the racing wasn't spectacular this weekend but also a recognition that's more about the cars and the competitive spread and various other factors beyond the format I think there's a resignation among those who might not like it and a realisation among those who support it that it's probably here to stay in one form or another. The sprint may continue to evolve a bit, but we're going to be left with this format for probably the remaining five sprints this year, very possibly next year with more of them. So I think it's more a question of fine-tuning is the feeling rather than uh, transformation. But I think some drivers don't like the kind of luck nature of it. I think they'd like one more practice session or something, or just not to go so immediately into it. But then again, it's the same for everyone. I quite like them going straight into qualifying on Saturday morning, actually. I thought that was an interesting little challenge. So it's sort of a mixed bag, but generally positive. But I think they also feel they need to be positive to not talk the product down as well. Mark, a question for you from Matthew Restino, who says, with the sprint point scorers being the top eight in the championship, is it likely the six sprints will exacerbate the gap between the halves, Mercedes, Ferrari, Aston Martin and Red Bull, and the have-nots? Similarly, with the sprint shootout, will it be a case of a few minor position changes compared to the main qualifying and Grand Prix? The old adage of doing the same thing and expecting different results comes to mind. Um, yes and yes. I mean, you, did the, you get um, points for the top eight in the sprint, and that's um, two cars each from the four fastest teams, which are quite clearly um, well clear of the fifth fastest team. So yes, that's they're, they're, that's just gonna keep keep notching up. And um, yeah, the the shootout. Uh, we we did see a few changes, didn't we? The, because the the track was quite different, it was a lot hotter. It was about a second and a half a lap slower, and some adapted to it better than others. And you know, we saw we saw the Red Bull drivers. You know, want they swapped around, and 
minor changes and um yeah but, but uh, you know, you're not going to see something fundamentally different but you're not going to see some something fundamentally different from one track to the next in terms of the qualifying hierarchy so yeah it's just just how you, how it is isn't it Next up for you, Scott, from Joe Andrews. Should Carlos Sainz be fearful of Oli Behrman? If Behrman wins an F2, surely Ferrari will have to find him a drive to stop Alfa Tauri getting their hands on him as they would be able to offer a seat, it seems. Surely we could have a Leclerc-Behrman pairing in 2025 or 2026. Oli Behrman, of course, won both F2 races this weekend. Oh, yeah, he's obviously a very talented young driver and I think Ferrari rate him quite highly and, and, and rightly so, but I, I don't see him being a a contender for for a Ferrari race seat um certainly not in the short or medium term um even Leclerc who was um not to do um Oli any disservice at all but you know I don't think Berman's quite an, on Leclerc's level um as a as a junior prospect even Leclerc had to do an apprenticeship at Sauber and then absolutely smash it at Sauber twinned with an ailing Kimi Raikkonen sort of fading towards the in the twilight stage of, of his career, you know, taking up a seat at Ferrari. So there was a sort of natural changing of the guard opportunity there. I don't really see any evidence that that Ferrari would see a significant upgrade on 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 signs. If if anything, signs performing like this, where he's clearly capable of being a strong second car but not being strong enough to cause Leclerc any problems is actually perfect for them because it gives them the de facto number one, number two driver that they're not going to actually enshrine in reality. So I think Sainz is, is, is fine. May, although, um, you know, if those rumours about um, Audi being interested in Sainz for 26 uh, turn out to be true, then maybe there'll be a vacancy for Beerman after all. Yeah, well, certainly if he keeps doing what he's doing, he's going to come into conversations. But yes, uh, a drive for the Ferrari main team is going to be very, very uh, difficult to achieve. But not impossible he is in their stable after all next question from christopher parrott which i'll take who asks what prevented williams taking advantage of its slippery car i was expecting the long front straight to play right into their hands well i'd argue that it did because the williams was quick this weekend it just didn't really play out for them alex Albon in the main qualifying session would have made q3 but he had that little rear snap while going around the outside of carlos Sainz, who's a little bit distracted about science was out of the way didn't do anything wrong but that just little moment cost Albon in that first qualifying session and then of course in the sprint shootout qualifying Albon was uh, seventh fastest so he was leading the midfield so that Williams had real pace I think Albon will rue a little bit going for that gap on the first lap when he was up the inside of Piastri I think he probably didn't realize Valtteri Bottas was on the outside as well three abreasts through that second turn's not going to work. And Alvin got a little bit of front wing end plate damage from that. And that pretty much doomed his race. He made an early stop as well. So didn't get the benefit of the safety car that went against him and he's buried in the midfield. But the Williams was genuinely quick and could have got some good results. Ninth in the sprint as well, which was as good as could have been achieved. And if that had been the Grand Prix, that would have been two points. Yeah, and I also think people should remember that the Williams was genuinely quick in, in Melbourne as well. This was actually, I think, a broadly similar level of competitiveness to, to Melbourne. That the, the, the car's clearly not just, you know, a straight line speed merchant. It's pretty, it's okay through the corners as well. And I suspect there was also an element of they excel in a sort of lower drag setting, but everybody else kind of moved towards a lower drag setting here anyway. So if that's kind of your, you know, that that's the, the, the main arrow that you have in your quiver, and then all of a sudden everybody else has that arrow as well, then it's a it's more of a straight fight, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And they held up their end well. In another weekend, things work out a little bit differently, and I think they get some points. Of course, Logan Sargent had a slightly frustrating weekend into Q2 for the first time in both qualifying sessions, but of course crashed at the end of Q1 in one of them and couldn't participate in the sprints because they were repairing the car. So continues to be... His peak's really good, Sergeant, but uh, hasn't quite strung things together as yet. Mark, a question for you from JK. Are the characteristics of the RB19 similar to those of the early season Red Bull RB18? And do Red Bull have the scope to develop it more in Verstappen's direction, given they don't have the low-hanging fruit of simply removing weight from the front of the car like they did last year? It's not really that similar. The early season RB18 understeered. Uh, this car doesn't really have that trait, but... It doesn't have that extreme front-end responsiveness of the late-season RB18. It, it, it's, it's, it's in the middle. And the way they've achieved it with a, a super stable aero platform, I, I don't see it 
being developed any any differently. I think it'll it rule they, those traits will remain for the season, um, and I think it'll be a, a more um, it'll equalise the two driving styles of, of Verstappen and Perez probably more effectively. Um, as, as we discussed earlier, you'd still expect Verstappen to be uh, generally faster, but just because he is intrinsically a faster driver anyway. But I, I don't think that difference will be amplified in the way that it was with a late season RB18 and um, sort of disguised in the way it was with the understeering RB18. I think this is just a much more balanced car, which will remain pretty much the same through the season in terms of its general traits. Next up for you, Scott, from Rupert Stevens. What are you hearing of the success or otherwise of the McLaren upgrade? Their car was no further in front of Sonoda's Alfa Tauri than it was in Melbourne. Uh, I think that's um, I think that's probably a slightly harsh assessment, but one element of it is that the Alfa Tauri has improved as well. The, the Alfa Tauri is a much better car than we saw in the first couple of races. It also it had its own significant upgrade in Melbourne that did start to that did seem to work here. It had also um, the the first opportunity to address its uh, drag defici- uh, drag deficiency that it has. Um, this season as well. So the, the Alfa Tauri was further improved and a much more competitive midfield prospect. I think the McLaren was a, did, did have a nice sort of nice step forward. They were talking about having maybe two or three tenths of a second that they might be able to gain over the course of a lap around here. And that is what I believe they feel was, um, was delivered on. Norris was hoping for a slightly bigger step in straight line speed. That hasn't quite happened. And McLaren has admitted that there are bigger gains that need to be made in terms of how draggy the car is, that it's a work in progress. We know that this is the first of probably three significant packages this year. The next one that's come in will come before the summer break. So it's a step in the right direction for McLaren, but it was never going to be the solution to all their problems. I think it's probably an upgrade package that allows them to fight more consistently at the front of the midfield, more like they were in, I guess, in the end in Melbourne, but they were behind Alpine really on raw pace in, in Australia. We don't know what Alpine could have done this weekend on a, on a clean one. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that upgrade goes in in Miami. But I think McLaren has, I think McLaren's quite confident that it has at least made a decent step forward. Next up, a question I'll take from Thomas Knights. Since his very good drive to points in Bahrain, Valtteri Bottas seems to have spent most of the races last of the running cars. The car obviously isn't great, but how much of a surprise is it to see a driver of his class struggling so much? Well, I don't think he's struggling massively. He's been a little bit up and down, as he can be. But the Alfa Romeo isn't stunningly competitive. If you look at this weekend in the sprint, he was one of two drivers to start on softs. He made them last to the end, but no chance on the softs. Norris had to make a stop to to change tyres because uh, the way they were behaving, there was a lot of graining on the softs, which obviously not only causes grip problems, but also accelerates the overall dag as well. So I think he's doing all right. Joe Guan Yu, his teammate, has stepped up his game and it's a little bit back and forth in qualifying between those two. So I think he's got a, a, a tougher benchmark than... Joe was as a rookie last season. I think the main problem is Alfa Romeo are just struggling. They've got a car that has a little bit too much drag for its downforce level. They had a low downforce wing, as most did for this weekend. But the Alfa's not that competitive. I don't necessarily think Bottas is grabbing it by the scruff of the neck and trying to force performances out of it. But I think the main problem ultimately is uh, is Alfa's performance. And he ended up on a again in the main race this weekend on a an odd strategy. He came in early to get onto the hards to try and gain position. And under the safety car, he pitted again for hards because that was literally the only move they had left and it wasn't a very good one. So they just (laughs) took the fresh hards just in case that slightly extra range. It was only about six laps since he'd stopped, made a difference. So, yeah, I don't think Bottas is doing terribly. I think it's mainly Alfa Romeo struggling, a bit of circumstances and a bit of Bottas normal variation. Next up, a question for you, Mark, from Giselle Mitten, who says, what is the realistic race pace gap between Red Bull and Ferrari, Aston Martin and Mercedes? Depends if you're talking of qualifying a race, because it's quite different. Well, ra- race pace gap. Oh, race pace gap. Uh, about seven-tenths is, is how it looks as, as an average so far, which contrasts with about a tenth and a half in qualifying. Um, that's not because the others are good in qualifying. It's purely because the Red Bull's full potential can't be used in qualifying because the very thing which makes it so fast in the race is what prevents it getting its front tyres hot enough in qualifying. So you only really see its potential once we're 
two or three laps into a race. Um, but yeah, there's, there's it's, a, it's, a, it's a very big gap. It's, it, it is a dominant car. It's got a question from Michael Griggs. How much danger is Nick de Vries in of being replaced, bearing in mind his experience in other series? Is he being found wanting, especially with how Sonoda is performing in the other Alpha Tauri? Who are the potential replacements? And we compare that with a question from Mark Andrews as well, who says, with the struggles of both Sonoda and de Vries this weekend, Nick especially, is this a sign of the pressure coming from Lawson's amazing start to the Super Formula season? Or are the two drivers trying to make the most of the best the car has looked all season and taking it beyond the limits? And as a Kiwi, how much, if at all, has the paddock taken notice of Lawson's start to the Super Formula season? So I think starting with Michael's uh, question, I don't, I, I talked about this on a previous podcast, I don't think de Vries is in immediate danger of being replaced. Um, but I think he needs to start piecing it together soon rather than later because I think he's already starting going to be coming under pressure. There'll be a bit of scrutiny on him from the outside. Fortunately, he is in a team and in a situation where I it, the it's blunt, but like I think the I think few people really care about how well he gets on there, and it's F1's arguably most anonymous team. So I guess he's safe in in that regard. But Red Bull will be keen for him to to improve i think it's at the end of the season whether he gets a more than one year in f1 where he's um it's most vulnerable is he being found wanting i'm not 100 percent sure i think he's not necessarily dealing with the situation very well but it's not like it's not like he's now suddenly useless um in the same way that it's not like um we thought he was absolutely mega and this is being proven um not to be the case he he had to have a specific set of circumstances aligned for him to get his chance in, in, in Formula One. That culminated in that shot at Monza last year. It was a good opportunity because the Williams was very competitive competitive that weekend. But De Vries, De Vries grabbed it with both hands. He did a fantastic job at Monza last year. And, he, and if that was all it needed to get him the shot at Red Bull, he, he earned it because he'd done a, done, a, done a good job. He's a good driver. I don't think he's a great driver. If you, have, if you gave him a good car, I think he'd do a decent job. He's not had a great car so far. He's struggling and Sonoda's getting the most out of it and starting to show him up a little bit. Moving into the second part of um, that question and the, the the other question specifically about Lawson, because I think he is the prime candidate. I would go so far as to say, given the Red Bull juniors aren't exactly covering themselves in glory in F2, that Lawson's probably the only threat to De Vries at the moment for an AlphaTauri seat next year. I think... Lawson is impressing people within F1 because Super Formula is a tough place to go. Um, but I don't think that is affecting what's going on with the two Alpha Tower drivers. I think Sonoda is actually generally doing a very good job this season and De Vries is just struggling to really adapt to the realities of, of being, F, being in F1. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, difficult weekend for De Vries in the wall twice, qualifying, crash, and then clip the wall in the in the Grand Prix. So not ideal for him. I, I generally think Sonoda's been pretty strong, actually. A nice 10th place in the Grand Prix this weekend. I think he's a little bit unlucky in the sprint race. The contact with De Vries, I think Sonoda could have played it a bit more sensibly. It's something that could have been avoided. It wasn't a perfect place to be, but it was a very, very small incident. He should have been a little bit more careful because he was coming back into the pits because he knew he had some front wing damage and might be down on load. So that was a little bit needless. But the rest of the weekend, actually, really very good from Sonoda. And I've been quite impressed with Sonoda this season. I think he's taken a bit of a, a step. Anyway, Mark, next question for you from Jay Kaufman, who says, would it be worth F1 exploring using an IndyCar push-to-pass-esque system where there's a limit to how much battery deployment can be used throughout the race to attack defend? Is the DRS train dirty air effect simply too much for a change like this to make such an impact? Obviously, I can't expect to make the racing quite as tight and hectic as Indy, but I've always appreciated the concept of 200 seconds of push-to-pass deployable in up to 20 seconds per lap, if memory serves. Yeah, um, I'm sure it'll be quite effective, actually. Um, I just find it a bit artificial, a bit showbiz, and I think Formula One needs to tread that line quite carefully. Um, that's no reason for it not to happen in the current environment. I mean, Titan Hectic's quite in vogue at the moment, but um, that said, IndyCar is not as popular as you'd imagine it would be, given you know how entertaining it is. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know how it would translate, but. Um, in short, yes, I think it would probably um, be reasonably effective, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced it's a direction Formula One would be wise to follow. And I think we should remember there is something vaguely in this ballpark engineered into the rules because you can spend electrical energy at a greater rate than you can harvest it in terms of the amount per lap. So there's a little bit of that in there. That's why people run out of charge and have to 
to build up after they've had an attack. You can run in a kind of a steady state basis with deployment and harvesting, or you can uh, spend it. So that there is already some of that in there. Uh, Scott, final question for you from Andrew Thompson. There's a lot of debate about the sprint format, whether having it form the grid for the main race or be standalone is best, and how to encourage racing. Why not just make it entirely about entertainment and have a non-points fun race, a bit like BTCC with silhouette bodywork from the team's sponsor-slash-engine manufacturer on a century-run standard spec car, a bit like the old Pro Car series in the 80s. No conflict from drivers in other manufacturers' cars, no jeopardy for the main race or budget cap, a chance for drivers from lesser teams to show their skill in equal cars and just enjoy some fun racing. If someone could put that together, then i'd be absolutely all for it but the just the the sheer complex commercial realities of f1 and the way everything works how it's it's just not possible unfortunately i mean it'd be hard enough to get like one single exhibition race at some point during the season let alone trying to implement it into the format so no it's a nice idea but um and it is it is a genuinely fun one um, if if it could only ever happen once in the in 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 my lifetime, I'd I'd love to see it. But I think it's a very 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 long way from ever being able to be made a reality. I should do it a bit like that BTCC Masters race they did with the old one make Seats two thousand and four. I'm going to say at Donington Park. I was there for that one, getting all the super touring legends and get them to smash into each other. There was a bit of that in that race. But yes, uh, I- wasn't that inevitably won by Anthony Reid? I think it probably was, yeah. Yeah, it was good fun, though, certainly. It was uh, very enjoyable, yeah. Great idea, but, uh, yeah, even with the idea engineering in the the avoiding of commercial clashes in terms of the uh, the cars not being identified with any manufacturer and could be aligned with your own sponsor or whatever by the silhouette body, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, things in the way of that. But it's an absolutely brilliant idea, so somebody should try and make it happen. But yeah, I think any kind of extra race on a regular basis is going to be something akin to the sprint. Well, thanks very much to Scott and Mark for their insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen for all the post-race fallout and pre-Miami news. Have a listen to our other podcasts, including our IndyCar podcast, given they're racing at Barber. And also check out our YouTube channel. We're off to Miami next, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.